good service and good friends, it's the Quarterback Club in Northfield. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. But today, we'll be joined by someone from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean to help us better understand our topic. The Russians invaded Ukraine in late February. It is now mid-August, and that war has become a war of attrition. The Ukrainian military and people are doing their best to defeat a large Russian force of soldiers, but it's been costly on both sides. The fallout from Vladimir Putin's campaign to deter Ukraine from aligning in any way with Europe, the European Union, or even NATO, has happened quickly and with stunning changes to the political, security, and economic landscape in Europe. It seems clear now that Putin wants to seize and hold large swaths of sovereign Ukrainian territory to expand Russia and Russian influence and to replace the democratically elected government in Kyiv with people of his choosing. Prior to February of this year, it is doubtful anyone would have predicted that Putin's invasion of Ukraine would so quickly turn the tide of public opinion in both Finland and Sweden, resulting in the governments of those two traditionally non-aligned countries to apply for full NATO membership. Turkey, formerly known as Turkey, stood against that application for a while, but the initial issues were resolved, and both Finland and Sweden are now official applicants to become members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The United States Congress just recently officially ratified our nation's support for Finland and Sweden's applications, but a few hurdles still remain from other nations in the NATO alliance. With us to discuss this monumental change is a previous guest on our show from Finland, Charlie Slonius-Pasternak. Charlie Slonius Pasternak earned his Bachelor of Arts from Wesleyan University in the United States and a Master of Social Sciences from the University of Helsinki in Finland. Charlie currently serves as the lead researcher heading up the Center on U.S. Power and Politics at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Charlie is also a senior research fellow at the Institute's Global Security Program. His research and writing focuses on international security issues with a regional focus on Nordic and transatlantic security, including NATO, as well as U.S. foreign and defense policy. Charlie has also served as an advisor at Finnish Defense Command. He frequently lectures at universities in Finland, at Oxford University in the United Kingdom, and here in the United States. Charlie Salonius Pasternak publishes in English, Swedish, and Finnish, and has appeared on CNN and numerous other news channels around the world. Charlie Salonius Pasternak, welcome back to National Security This Week. Great to be back here. Thank you for inviting me. It is a late afternoon in Helsinki, Finland. How are things in Finland today? Well, it is actually literally record hot. It has never been this hot this deep into August. Um, that's temperature-wise. So, of course, uh, climate change being a security issue, too, in, in the Pentagon and, and here, too. Uh, but from the purely security point of view, as I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, Finland is, is quite quite secure. Uh, work fall has started and um, people are ready to, um, or lots of people are working on uh, this process to get Finland into NATO. All right. Charlie, let's get into our discussion. There's a lot of things I want to uh, touch on base with you on today. As one of the senior researchers at the Finnish Institute for International Affairs, as someone who has worked with the Finnish Ministry of Defense, 
And as a student of national security, could you comment on, on Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I mean, from, from the Finnish perspective, what was it Putin was trying to achieve with the invasion, and why did his early efforts fail so miserably? And what's he trying to achieve now? Well, from what we can tell, which isn't, isn't all that different from what U.S. intelligence has been saying publicly and, and U.K. intelligence and so on, uh, is uh, there was a desire to try to do a very quick regime change. Um, and uh, I suspect he had been told by a lot of people that this was going to be a walkover. Uh, you can tell one of the biggest surprises from Finnish perspective, you can you know, analysts, uh, military intelligence people, where is the Russians weren't even following their own doctrine. Mm. I mean, the Russians are good at some things, not so good for civilians always, but they're good at some things. But they weren't even following their doctrine. There's clearly no genuine planning on logistics and very little expectation that there would be any, you know, defense mounted of the country in a way. So, uh, as, as you mentioned, try to take... Uh, destroy Ukraine as an independent entity. We have to remember that Putin said just as the war was starting and even before that, that Ukraine is a made-up state. It doesn't actually exist. And any Ukrainians who speak Ukrainian or think there is a state have a kind of a false consciousness uh, and are Nazis to boot. Uh, so therefore, Ukraine had to be denazified, destroyed, uh, demilitarized, and, and parts of it then taken, integrated into uh, Russia uh, in various ways. Uh, now, this clearly didn't happen as he had planned, fortunately, I think, uh, and it seems unlikely. Yes, the war seems to have stalled now. I mean, it's not World War I levels of, of stalling, uh, and the winter is coming. So uh, let's see. It's possible there could be a stalemate for a while. Uh, war, like serious operations, could uh, erupt At, at any Sorry time, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's right. Technical di yeah. difficulties. It happens every once in yeah, a while. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so so I suspect he was just, I mean, most people who start a war think it's going to be fast and easy. And it never is. Uh, it never is. And in this particular case, uh, I don't think anyone probably in Putin's near circle uh, told him or had the guts um, to go and say, you know, Mr. President, I think there's an other possibility here. And it's not a walkover. Uh, the Finns certainly know this. I'm sh I know we'll touch on this from, from our experience in the Winter War, that uh, this is not the first time <laughs> that Russia or the Soviet Union has thought things are going to be a walkover. When you surround yourself with a bunch of yes-men in a dictatorship, it's, it's never a good thing when people don't feel the, they have the freedom to speak up. What was the mood in Finland when Russia launched their offensive in late February? Hey, can you tell us about the turn of the tide in people's feelings about the threat, the perceived threat from Russia to Finnish sovereignty? I mean, and, and after all, and you just touched on it, it's not like Finland doesn't have some direct knowledge of what it's like to be attacked by the Russians. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to separate out kind of myself and what I was expecting and seeing from the general mood. I think generally people certainly had been following this um, a lot. It was on basically every day in the news in, in some ways. But it still came as a shock to a lot of people, including a lot of politicians. Um, in some cases, I understand politically why a few people, we'll get to this also, who, who had opposed Finnish NATO membership and then wanted to reconsider it, they kind of had to make a break and, and present 
February 24th is the shock of all shocks. You know, who could have foreseen this? <laughs> because it made it possible for them to then change their mind. Sure. Now, having obviously worked in this, um, you know, you could see these signs uh, for over a decade. I mean, there's been a war going on, a low-level war probably between 2016 and, and uh, in the beginning of this year. But a war has been going on there. Yeah. Uh, Russia and Georgia did fight a war in 2008. Right. Uh, we've seen what Russia has done uh, in terms of using chemical weapons for assassination. I, I, the list is endless. Um, so it shouldn't have come as a surprise, but it did to most people. Uh, I would say that in the end, this was not a bluff. In the end, we we're going to see the largest war in Europe since World War II. Yeah. did come to a shock as a lot. So what about the Swedish peace people? I, I'm, I'm going to assume that you have a pretty good feel for what is happening with your neighbors to the West. What was the mood like in Stockholm and across Sweden when Russia invaded? There, I would have to say, it was even a bigger shock. Because hmm. as you noted, you know, Finns, whether or not, irrespective of where you fall in the political spectrum, there is a, for most people, still a familiar, as in family-based connection to World War II. Hmm. and a memory of, of this whole set of events. In Sweden, there isn't. Um, Sweden, of course, also uh, basically destroyed their national defense capability. They maintained a military, but it was for expeditionary operations only. Um, they didn't do national defense planning for a decade, which for a Finn is completely inconceivable. Why would you have a defense <laughs> force if you don't do national defense planning? Yeah. So. For much of Sweden, it was an even greater shock, including for the political establishment. So we're going to take a quick break for our audience. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Charlie Slenis Pasternak, a senior researcher with the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. And we're talking about Finland and Sweden recently applying to join the NATO alliance. All right, Charlie, so Finland uh, applies to join NATO at the same time as Sweden. Uh, this shock of the Russian invasion of Ukraine sort of fundamentally changing the perspectives uh, of the populations in both Finland and Sweden. Uh, it was a fantastic photo op, frankly, as both nations, you know, long-time non-aligned countries, but certainly nations that have been partners for peace within the NATO alliance for years, uh, make the decision to join the Mutual Security Treaty. A and then Turkey stepped in. Uh, can you please explain to our listeners why Turkey balked at Finland and Sweden's initial application what is or, or, or was Turkey's issue with Finland and Sweden? Uh, I will separate Finland and Sweden here because uh, they're obviously lumped in by Turkey for, sure. for yep. a kind of a practical purpose. Uh, but before that, I'll, I'll say one thing. You, you mentioned correctly that Finland and Sweden have been uh, uh, in the partners' peace uh, kind of grouping NATO since the mid-'90s, uh, participated in NATO-led operations, the Balkans, Afghanistan, all of this. And of course, since 2014, um, done really in-depth cooperation with NATO as partners, partially because NATO realized that it was going to have trouble to fulfill its defense, existing defense commitments of especially Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, maybe Poland, without Finland and Sweden's cooperation. Yeah. Um, so it's been an interesting process over decades. But back to Turkey, um, Turkish officials, I mean, Finland, once this decision was made, the Finnish diplomatic corps had one mission and one mission only. <laughs> that is to secure knowledge 
from all of the existing NATO member countries, were they for or against? If they were against Finland, was it on principle or was there an issue that could be dealt with? Everyone basically said yes, including Turkey, including just before President Turkey to his Finnish counterpart and Foreign Minister of Turkey to his Finnish counterpart. Yeah, we have no problems with fin Finland's, you know, wanting to Finland wanting to become a NATO member. Um, so why then this roadblock? Uh, I think there were probably a whole host of things. There is nothing specifically about Finland that Turkey objected to, frankly. Right. The countries have had a long, good, long time, good relationship. Um, Finland's been one of the supporters for, although it's more about now, but Turkey's EU accession and so on. Um, but there's probably a domestic politics angle to this. Um, there are presidential elections coming up in Turkey uh, next spring. Um, Turkey has already for years wanted to show that it is it's its own master, a, a serious if not the most serious regional player, um, Middle East, tying kind of its corner of Europe to it. So there were kind of domestic uh, Turkey image issues here. Uh, then Turkey was probably a little concerned that NATO was really focused now on the what's called the eastern flank, northeastern member na nations. And wanted to remind everyone that, hey, since we're going to have a new strategic concept, which is approved then in, in uh, end of June in, in Madrid, it really has to consider also terrorism and a host of other issues for other member countries. So that's one block, which is probably the most legitimate. Now, how it came out uh, was rather kind of bizarre in, you know, not just suggesting, but saying that the Finnish government supported terrorists <laughs> and that the Swedish government was supporting terrorist organizations with hundreds of millions of euros and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, um, in Sweden's case, there are probably some Kurds that have asylum in Turkey, uh, in Sweden, that are genuinely problematic, objectively speaking, where Turkey might have an argument of saying, these are genuine terrorists, we'd like you to extradite them. But then there was a whole host of people that had just said some, you know, nasty thing about Turkish President Erdogan, which is obviously not a reason that either Finland or Sweden as developed democracies are going to hand over a person who's likely to be tortured and put into jail for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, so it came out into a debate, but that's why Turkey needed its pound of flesh, both in the moment to remind NATO of this and then to be able to show domestically that, hey, we stuck it to the big guys. We did not bend in front of U.S. pressure and so on. So there's a whole host of these things. Uh, but of course, had Turkey destroyed kind of this good feeling you were saying by not allowing Finland and Sweden to move forward or NATO to accept them um, so that the NATO, uh, you know, summit in Madrid would have been watered down, that would probably have decreased Turkey's leverage. Yeah. So there was an optimum moment when Erdogan, who's a good, you know, I mean, I've lived in Istanbul. I've gone to the bazaar many times. You know, every, every good negotiator and haggler has got to realize when, when they've got the best deal and then just, you know, <laughs> yeah. take it. Yeah. So uh, I do want to come back to some of those issues with uh, the ratification process in a little bit, but how did that initial objection from Turkey get resolved? I mean, what, what, were, the, what were the concessions that Turkey extracted from Finland and Sweden? Well, the public ones, I mean, it was this document, which was, if I was going to teach a class on how to craft a diplomatic thing that has heavy language, I mean, seriously <laughs> heavy language, means nothing. I mean, you know, how you can write these sentences which seem super serious and really don't 
tie anyone to anything is is a gift, I think. Um, uh, so there's going to be a joint committee to to look into these allegations of, of terrorism. You know, meanwhile, Sweden is probably maybe the first country in the world, if I remember correctly, to say PKK is a terrorist organization um, uh, and so on. So it had to be the language had to be finessed. Uh, then there was going to be a point at which po the three countries are going to see um, uh, ha has everyone lived up to this, you know. Uh, there are probably some misunderstandings. You know, Turkey wanted there to be updates to terrorism leg legislation, which Finland had d done well before this process. Um, and it, it may simply be that in Turkey, they hadn't realized this had been done already. So I don't know. So anyway, a process of figuring this out. So that's the, the formal part that we know of. Now, everyone who's also studied international relations and remember the Cuba missile crisis, remembers there was a side deal. Oh, yeah. Um, now, I have no proof, and none of us, you know, will ever have, at least anytime soon, but it's not inconceivable to me that there was a side deal. You know, all of a sudden, U.S. Congress will say, you know what, we realize that Turkey's flying, you know, uh, its F-16s, which are ancient in some ways, you know, we, we're going to allow them to upgrade some. Not entirely at all related to this. But right. six months from now, it you know, it might be resolved or whatever. So, you know, it's entirely possible there were side deals like this, which aren't part of the actual deal, but wink, nudge were made. Yeah, I, I think from my perspective, Charlie, I think you just nailed it. I think there are a whole bunch of other things that were probably agreed to uh, in private uh, to get uh, Erdogan back on board uh, publicly well, uh, with, well, with that this, this moving is, forward. Um, yeah, because when they had, so apparently the last, the, the night before the festivities in Madrid, the first two hours of negotiations were kind of, nothing was moving. And then there were a few suggestions of what about this, this, this. And then in two hours, they got it sorted. The first person they called to check if this was okay was Biden. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, draw whatever conclusions you want. So the applications from Finland and Sweden are now with the governments uh, of the NATO alliance members uh, for approval or, or ratification, as the process is known. It's, it's likely the applications will sail through. Uh, we'll see. I think it's uh, there's we're down to what is it seven countries that have not officially yes. ratified at this point. Uh, do you see any further hurdles for Finland and Sweden in getting ratified for NATO applications through the remaining nations? Uh, I mean, uh, for me, I think it's sort of uh, it's. My guess is Erdogan will still want to extract some additional concessions, either publicly or privately. And then the other yep. hurdle is probably uh, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary. Is that how you see this unfolding? Yeah, I, I, I would be surprised if Turkey wasn't the last to give the go-ahead. Right. Because, well, yep. again, negotiating 101. Um, uh, this was kind of expected in a way because— uh, you know, the first thing was about, can we start the process? Uh, but of course, then it is the selected, you know, representatives of the of the um, NATO members who get to decide. I mean, mm -hmm. it is a solemn undertaking. Sure. So I get it. Uh, but it's entirely possible for Turkey or Erdogan to say, look, I'm OK with it. But now the Turkish people or their representatives <laughs> must be comfortable about this. Yeah. So they need something, too. Um, and. Um, yeah, so I, I think uh, we can see something like that, although every effort was made in negotiations to make it clear that 
everything is on the table. Tell us everything you want so we don't get to this point. Right. Uh, but I could see them saying, well, you know, yes, Finland, Sweden, well, well done. You've, 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 you've done something. I don't know what, but you've done something. But we still have one little detail. Have you implemented whatever thing? Um, something like that. In terms of uh, Hungary, um, uh, I mean, <sighs> Hungary is a problem just within the EU regarding EU sanctions packages, many other ways. Right. And Hungary has gotten significant leeway on this right in terms of russian gas buying russian gas and so on so i'm thinking that well neither orban nor erdogan want to die on this hill it's not worth it for them um and uh, i don't know what orban could extract out of nato for this that would be beneficial for him vis-a-vis the eu uh so uh, you know who knows but uh, the Finnish defense minister, Antti Kaikkonen, opened the national defense course and gave kind of a update speech, as he always does. And he was saying, well, if everything goes as, as they think it's going to go, by the end of year, Finland and Sweden will be members. Let's, let's hope, right? The process has been drawn out in the past uh, for other uh, applicants, but uh, this seems like a no-brainer to me. Uh, I, th- I think so, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, as you know, Charlie, I mean, when I met you back in 2008, I spent two and a half years in your country as the naval attache. I, I, I know for a fact that Finland watches Russia all the time. There's never not a fixed eye on your neighbors to the east. Has this application in NATO resulted in any response from Vladimir Putin uh, and, and Russia on your border or in, in Russian forces near Finland? I mean, are you seeing any movement, any changes in behavior? Um. It's fascinating. I mean, for for years, Russia had made it clear that it did not want to see Finland join NATO. Yep. Uh, at the same time, especially after 2014, but I'm sure before that, it must have been obvious to anyone in the Russian general staff that if there was a war or even a crisis, you know, it, it wasn't a question of which side Finland's picking. Like that, that was <laughs> yeah. done decades ago. So, yeah. um, uh, so yes, always looking at Russia. Then um, Russia had tried to say, you know, there's no threat here. Um, and then when Finland applied, and Sweden for that matter, all of a sudden both Vladimir Putin and Foreign Minister Lavrov were like, ah, no big deal. Uh, it's only a big deal if there's, you know, extensive NATO uh, infrastructure or, or permanent forces or something like that. Now, the extensive NATO infrastructure, I assume, is a reference to the um, uh, anti-ballistic mili- missile systems, kind of ages onshore, mm-hmm. um, and and ba- and permanent, you know, larger troop formations like the enhanced forward presence units, uh, battalions, brigades that are now in um, in all the other Eastern European kind of frontline states. Um, so they move the goalposts, but they move them so far that they don't actually have to really say anything about Finland and Sweden joining members because they're like, hey, you can be members. We don't care. Uh, it's what you do with it, yeah. which is true. Yeah. You know, yeah. if fin- Finland, ha- you know, the, the likelihood of Finland ever thinking of attacking Russia by itself <laughs> has been zero, and it will remain zero as a NATO member. You know, it's, it's not changing. Um, uh, some have argued that, in fact, in Finland and Sweden, NATO gains two members that, have no illusions about Russia, 
right. but are always willing to, especially Finland as having a very long border with Russia, which we'll touch upon, realizing that you can be military prepared, but you have to have some dialogue. You know, the border guards, the Finnish and Russian border guards just have to talk because there's practical stuff to deal with. Right. Um, uh, have the Russian troops moved? Yes, they moved to Ukraine, and some of them have been <laughs> decimated. Yeah, that's true. And um, that's true. While I should not say that with any amount of glee, because a bunch of young men dying in vain is not a great thing anywhere. Um, any Finn I've talked to also doesn't mind that there have literally not been this few Russian or Soviet troops by the Finnish border ever. Wow, that I did not um, know. That I didn't know. Did and. You know, maybe except the first year of independence or something like that, but in any kind of actual timeline. And um, uh, and most of those units, um, you know, getting them back through conscription, maybe, but, you know, loss of equipment between 20 and 60 percent. Right. Uh, so it's not going to be replaced fast either. So. Uh, so, yeah, there has been troop movement, but in a positive way, as it were, from a Finnish perspective. Yeah, I actually just saw a Pentagon report that came out, uh, I don't know, within the last week. Uh, there are estimates that the Russians have taken somewhere between seventy and 80,000 casualties uh, in their invasion of Ukraine. Kill killed and wounded, obviously, not all dead. Yeah. Uh, how are the Finnish and Swedish defense ministries uh, reorganizing to become part of the NATO readiness force structure? Has any of that uh, organizing started to happen already? Uh, officially, no. Uh, the the thinking being that, you know, once we are members, then both sides can have serious discussions. So, as I said, between 2014, 2000, well, now, uh, both bilaterally with the U.S., but with Sweden especially, uh, a little bit with some NATO other NATO members, there's been far more discussions about defense policy, defense strategy, how Finland would react in different situations, scenarios, exercises, so on. Um, but as a member, will be probably the first time that, you know, Finns will go to Brussels or elsewhere, be the Pentagon also, and be like, now let us tell you how we're actually planning on defending this country, because we've been planning on it for a century. Right. So we have uh, some ideas. So I, I think in a way they're waiting for all of this stuff to be sorted. Now, that doesn't mean that nothing has happened. And I'll split it up into two things. What is the readiness? And I'll think of it as the deterrence function. So these enhanced forward presence units, uh, battle groups that are in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and now since the spring, also in all the other um, uh, eastern, what are called frontline states. There, I mean, I have said all spring, just wrote an op-ed which came out last week in Helsinki in Sanamatsa, the biggest Finnish daily that certainly Finland has to do this, but Finland hasn't, you know, the, uh, there's a cultural change needed to recognize that if there was a century of we're planning to and we're going to have to do this alone, right? To we're now part of a collective defense family. That's the huge change. The, the military technical interoperability stuff, we're way down that path already. There's lots to do, but we're way down that path already. Um, but so I said, we're going to have to not because we want war, obviously, but contribute to net NATO's ongoing deterrence operations. So, you know, I said send a combat engineering company to the British-led EFP in Estonia. We've worked with the Brits in the Balkans, Afghanistan, you know, works well. 
logistics would be easy. As you know, there are massive ferries that go between Helsinki yeah. and Tallinn. <laughs> That's so, right. Yeah. you know, this would be easy. And uh, we can do the Baltic air policing mission from Helsinki. We don't yeah. even actually need to take logistics footprints from Amari or, 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 or anywhere else there. Uh, so these would be gimmies, easy things to do. Um, now, so that's one component. But then, as you know, it's not like they're NATO forces. They're national forces that are, you know, kind of promised to NATO under different conditions and setups. Um, and so what has been happening, and this is tied to, there's a concern that, Russia would react more aggressively when Finland and Sweden sought NATO membership. Now, Russia Russia doesn't have the military wherewithal or capability to do it at the moment. Yeah. Um, besides some small special operations mission, which would be, frankly, a suicide mission, um, <laughs> or just go straight up and threaten with nuclear weapons, which they're unlikely to do. So there was a thinking of how do we mitigate this, that Finland and Sweden have shown their cards, but they're not NATO members and therefore there's no Article 5 collective defense guarantee. And so because of this, since I will say April, but, you know, uh, let's say April, early May, there has been a continuous stream of exercises, many lasting much longer than before. Because, of course, as you know, U.S. forces, other forces have been, you know, training in Finland for years. But now we're talking about long exercises, and we're not talking about exercises in preparations for some operation in Afghanistan, but like, how would we defend Finland together type of exercises? Right. So this has been ongoing. Part of all of this work will, of course, feed into then when there's a serious discussion about Finland and Sweden's kind of military structures and how it's integrated, how defense planning is done. NATO, of course, has just started its new defense planning uh, process, and Finland and Sweden will be able to jump into that. Uh, so kind of formally no changes yet, as I said, but informally a lot. I mean, as we speak, um, not far away from where I sit, um, the uh, Marine Corps 20, 22 um, MEU is exercising with some Finnish equivalent ranger kind of coastal ranger forces and coastal infantry forces um you know uk f-35s the uss corsage a uh, huge amphibious ship um arlay burks um you know i think parts of the u.s soft community have lived in finland ef effectively since the spring <laughs> and so on and their british counterparts and so on and so on so you know all of this will help when the time comes to integrate defense plans yeah, and I would just uh, highlight uh, a couple of things for our audience very quickly. You mentioned 20, 22nd MEU, that's the Marine Expeditionary Unit. Uh, that's a battalion landing force size uh, component of United States Marines training with the Finns right now. Uh, so, Charlie, you mentioned a little bit about uh, the fact that Finnish forces have served with alongside NATO forces in other uh, conflicts or peacekeeping operations around the world. And that there's a there's there has been a long term strong integration into the NATO uh, structure in that partner for peace status, but I think the biggest hurdle is how does all that change? And you you did a great job of covering it. Frankly, I'm glad you you spent as much time as you did talking about the fact that Finland's defense planning policy and planning process and the strategies that would be 
uh, developed are no longer Finland stand, stands alone. It's uh, Finland working collaboratively in the entire defense planning process as a full-blown member of NATO. And that will be a dr- dramatic change uh, for the fin- it, Finnish defense ministry. <laughs> it, 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 it will be. Um, um, I have a few, one stream, but I'll continue on this. Um, you know, there are, as you know, there are, um, there are facets of how Finland plans defense, um, how it implements it, readiness things, uh, which are very opaque on purpose. Yep. Um, because the less our adversary Russia knows, the better. Um, but that was okay because there was no one else to held uh, accountable. As long as Parliament said fine, then that's it. Right. <laughs> um, you know, there's only a small researcher community that kind of has the enough knowledge to, in any way, challenge the defense forces on some things. Um, and most of the time, frankly, the planning's pretty good. Um, and now all of a sudden they might have to explain to a, a, a U.S. you know colonel or an Italian general you know why certain choices have been made why why Finland you know why Finland has been looking at drones for a long time and has different drones but why for instance while there have been reapers in tests here but it's actually not a great platform for Finland yeah um, you know yeah. great for Middle East when you have air supremacy and Finland has always assumed that we will not have air supremacy just because of geography. Um, so all of these things will have to be explained in greater detail um, uh, to others as part of this collective defense family, which is perfectly natural, but it'll be a, it'll be a culture change. And I, and I do want to bring out one other quick point for our listeners, because I think this is important. You just touched on it briefly, but uh, Finnish Air Force is when, whenever a Finnish F-18 and, and in the future F-35s, when they take off from yep. the air bases in Finland, they are actually in the missile envelope for the Russian uh, S-400 uh, surface-to-air missile systems along that border area. So it's sort of, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a constant standoff all the time. And if things it, were it, to it, go hot, it would be a, an immediate conflict zone for the Finnish military. And, and this is, I mean, for, for since about probably 2015 uh this anti-axis area denial concept which is originally i know created for the pacific right um but kind of felt fed into thinking about the baltic sea and so lots of countries were thinking about how to get into this bubble mm-hmm. and i remember talking to a very senior um british general who then actually became the head of the uk defense forces and saying well all of our planning is based on the fact that we're in the bubble <laughs> right uh, all of our planning is based on that we don't have satellite communications. As you know, there's a lot of effort from, you know, anything from artillery to communications. There's always an analog backup. Yep. Uh, I mean, there, there are guys on motorbikes to send messages yep. if everything else fails. Um, you know, uh, you learn to read maps and do artillery with a map before you get GPS and you know, all of this. So it's a it's a slightly different mindset in a way of where you're operating. Um you know, someone, one of the listeners might be like, well, you know, Russia, Russia's um, precision weaponry in Ukraine hasn't always been so precise. No, no. Or then they're just targeting <laughs> civilian, which they're also doing. Um, but still, you know, I mean, everyone who has access to Google can see where Finland's main air bases are. But of course, that's not where we actually fly from in a war. Right. Um, right. <laughs> and I can say this because it's not a surprise to anyone who also has Google. So there's a whole host of other airports 
but roads in Finland, which are like magically long for the geography. <laughs> um, you know, so there's a network of roadside bases. Uh, so basically, you know, a jet takes off from one place, does its mission, lands in a completely different section on a road, rearmed 15 minutes later in the air. So it's a, it's a constant. The idea is to create an impossible whack-a-mole situation for the Russian Russians. Yeah, um, and, I, and I would say having served there as the naval attache, I was incredibly impressed with the really strategic thinking that went into planning out Finland's defense. Uh, for our audience, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Charlie Slenas Pasternak, a senior researcher with the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. And we're talking about Finland and Sweden recently applying to join the NATO alliance. So, Charlie, I, I know that uh, Finland has been watching the situation in Lithuania pretty intently. I'm, I'm sure you have, too. Uh, Lithuania cho chose to prevent Russian trains from accessing the Kaliningrad Oblast uh, across Lithuanian territory as a result of Russia's invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. That swath of land is known as the Savalki Gap and has always been a strategic issue for NATO, for Lithuania, for Poland even, and certainly for the Russians. As somebody who's a kind of a knowledgeable expert on the security situation in the Baltic nations, how concerned are you that Putin might try to push this issue maybe right up to the brink, especially if things start going really badly for Putin in Ukraine? Could that, could that situation, that Suwalki Gap, be sort of his next probe of the NATO alliance's willingness to stand against him? What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was a complex situation because it had to do with EU sanctions, what you could let through, all of this stuff. But, you know, so those situations will come and go. But I think the broader point about the Suwalki Gap um, and uh, even broader issue of where Putin might want to take this to escalate, because, of course, Russia has been talking about, you know, and arguing that, the West, broadly speaking, but including Japan, Australia, so on, uh, shouldn't provide heavy armaments to Ukraine because it'll escalate the, the situation. Of course, they're saying this because, in fact, some of these systems like the U.S. HIMARS, MLRS, uh, is, uh, is frankly kicking the butt of Russian rear command and control and logistics places. Anyway, um, so, so there's a, a sense of, you know, could he do this? I have been in many i hate to call them war games but that's what they are tabletop exercises where this has been part of part of the scenario i would say could he do it um right now no he just simply doesn't have the military capability can he threaten to do it could he push it could he include what would be viewed from nato's and eu's perspective as contraband on these trains or transports or other ways uh, yes, and kind of dare the rest to do something or West to do something about it. Um, that said, NATO, EU have been very conscious of n not wanting to purposefully escalate things. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there would have been a risk. It, it could blossom up again. As we sit here and speak, it seems to have, have, have died down a little bit. But it's certainly one of the easier places where, if he chose to, Putin could see, you know, uh, how unified are they? I have been, frankly, amazed uh, and surprised at the unity that both the EU, the West broadly, and NATO have shown uh, in the last six months. It, it is mean, extraordinary. It. It's, it really is extraordinary. A year ago, there was lots of hand-wringing 
some okay, but some I think genuinely hindering about, you know, um, uh, the U.S. is never going to be able to be credible or have international leadership because of, of Kabul. Um, uh, or I should say the first few days or week in Kabul thrall. Because let's remember that there's no literally no other country organization in the world than the U.S. with some NATO support that could airship 120,000 people in that period of time. Yeah. No one, not even close. So logistically, it was a success. Now, humanitarian and other ways, it wasn't. But, but still, there was this narrative that, you know, the West was in pieces. Yeah. And then effectively, six to nine months later, uh, NATO is more unified than ever, I would say, with the exception of some points during the Cold War, granted. But at least in the post-Cold War era, NATO is unified and, you know, on point in its main mission. So that's why I think, could Putin do something? Yes, but you know, the first war isn't going so well. So I'm thinking he probably doesn't want a second one. <laughs> yeah. And on your point about NATO, uh, tremendous commitments from all the members in NATO uh, to defense planning and, and ramping up spending on defense uh, acquisitions. Uh, 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 certainly. And and then what it seems like a small thing, and it, it, I think it probably, you know, skipped under the news horizon of the U.S. I mean, NATO agreed to transfer 40,000 national soldiers under the command of Sacker, U.S. general always, um, so he could decide where they were needed for first deterrence and, if that fails, defense of Europe. Mm -hmm. I, that is, it might not seem like it, but that is a massive decision yeah. to give national forces under the command of a U.S. four-star to say, hey, you know what, I need to send 4,000 there next week. Right. Um so, so that is just one one of the many symbols of this commitment. Yeah. So, Charlie, you mentioned a little while ago that uh, Finland shares that 850-mile border with Russia. Uh, by joining NATO, the front line for NATO and Russia just doubled in size <laughs> because of how long that border is between Finland and Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin, as you said earlier, stated he doesn't really view Finland or Sweden's application to NATO as much as an issue. I, I did hear a, the qualifier from him was that as long as NATO forces aren't based in either nation, and I think he's really specifically talking about Finland. Uh, have you heard any discussions about permanently basing NATO forces at Finnish bases, or is that is that kind of a non-starter from the Finnish perspective? It's it's a non-starter from the Finnish perspective. Um, I'll explain why, and then I'll say what we may see. Okay. Um, and first, I should say. Um, you know, during, during the spring, there were all sorts of discussions. Should there be these national limitations like Norway had of no permanent NATO bases during the Cold War and so on? Uh, and the Finnish officials very quickly realized um, and then spoke out and said, you know, we're not doing any carve outs or exceptions. The one being that the Finnish constitution prevents the stationing of nuclear weapons. But of course, you know, no one's offering Finland nukes and Finland doesn't want them. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. so not really an issue. Um, but yeah, so so I understand fully well why the Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians originally and then Poles wanted uh, other NATO members, soldiers on the ground, boots on the ground. You know, some called them tripwire forces, you know, kind of if there was a war, um, those countries would immediately be involved, all this. Uh, I think the Finns aren't, they aren't that concerned about it in a way. They, they, there's a, 
trust that, hey, we've committed to this, that yes, people will show up. And second of all, since we're talking about land forces specifically, you know, I mean, the, the mobilized field army is 280,000 and 900,000. So one third of the adult population have had military training. So like land forces is not the one thing we need. Um, <laughs> you know, l lots of long range strike weapons, air force and intelligence space assets, absolutely. But those are transferable in hours or days. Right. Um, yeah. So you basically, you need to have the interconnectors, the interoperability. And part of this, and this is the one NATO, I'll call it a NATO unit, but of course it's national contributions, um, uh, is, is, a, is a, you know, kind of 20, 30 person cell uh, that effectively provides both the technical and knowledge links, both to facilitate exercises as well as um, actual then operations. So they're the link between the national defense planning, um, bringing in people and, and so on. Uh, and 20, 30 people, you know, that can be folded into any number of Finnish commands. So that's not a problem. And that's certainly not what Russia would mean by the large forces. So that's what I'd kind of expect at the moment, that it'd be practical to have that unit here. Why not? Um, it, it opens doors. And then we'll see how the world looks. So we're going to we're likely to see a lot of uh, training, uh, interoperability training, uh, multinational forces in yeah. Finland, but no real permanent basing of other NATO forces in Finland. I, and, and of course, as the Finnish you know, politicians and officials said, they don't want to lock it in now Yeah. because if the world changes and in 10 years, it would be seen useful. But Finland now said, you know what, we don't this then certainly others could use this to their you know propaganda efforts and oh look finland's breaking some promise they made even if no promise was made so it's yeah. just easier to say we don't need you know no one's offering them finland's not going to ask for them it'll be fine yeah. uh, but the exercises yes and here i guess i'd highlight something which um you can maybe speak to also is uh i won't name any names but Quite frequently, if U.S., U.K., other countries, other special forces, Air Force, others go and exercises, um, it's, it's familiarization, but the give and take is probably not always 50-50. Hmm. But because of Finland's experience in certain things, what we focus on, as well as just the Arctic environment, yep. as I understand, it's a very even, you know, both sides are learning a lot from each other. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it's one of the reasons, for instance, there's been now for years a U.S. Marine Corps pilot flying with the Finnish units and a Finnish pilot flying um, uh, with a Marine Corps unit because the Finns, you know, focus very much on um, air-to-air -air combat. And the Marines, for about two decades, really didn't have to. Right. Um, so the Finns had, you know, same plane. So a lot of teaching of, you know, this is how we've modified the plane, the flight suits, our tactics, uh, all of this. Um, and then the Marines, of course, could teach Finland a lot about air ground strikes and that kind of stuff. Um, so that's uh, it's certainly a benefit. And of course, in terms of exercising, you know, it's a whole different thing. If often in the U.S. you hear this idea of, you know, owning the night, you know, with night vision <laughs> gear. But if the sun doesn't set for two months. There is no night. Oh, right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, um, but equally, then if the sun doesn't rise for two months, how do you transfer a division or a brigade in pitch black conditions when there's a meter of snow? Right. Like, it's, it's good to practice that.
It is. So I think there'll be a lot of exercises in this way. So you mentioned earlier, Charlie, a little bit, and we only have about 12 minutes left. Uh, I still have so many questions I'd like to ask, but... Uh, I'll try to answer shorter. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier about sort of the maritime considerations. Finland relies pretty heavily on the Baltic Sea for, for commerce. Yeah. Uh, Russia has two major military ports on the Baltic, both in St. Petersburg and, and Kaliningrad. Uh, when you were on our show last year, uh, we discussed the Finnish military, including the Finnish Navy. Does this change, you know, Finland joining the NATO alliance, impact how Finland thinks about the maritime security issue, especially in light of Russia's aggression in the Black Sea? Rus the Russian Navy has been blockading Ukrainian ports and preventing the shipment of grain uh, out of Ukraine and, and definitely preventing anything from reaching Ukrainian shores. What are your thoughts on the maritime security issue in the Baltic uh, with uh, Finland joining NATO? Well, one, again, it'll be a big cultural change to now all of a sudden the operating environment is much broader um, and, um, and it encompasses for the Finnish Navy's perspective all of the Baltic Sea. Um, but then again, there's a possibility to cooperate. So, yeah, you said, I mean, depending on if you look at the value or volume or whatever trade, but, you know, let's say 70, 80, up to 90 percent of Finnish trade is seaborne and we're functionally an island. Uh, even more now that there's very little trade with Russia, or none almost. Um, uh, so the Finnish Navy's mission for years now has been, you know, continuity regarding maritime trade, mm -hmm. uh, convoys in a way. Uh, and then the way you do this is, of course, you need ships, and, and then in some ways you can use mines. But also being able to block in any parts of the Russian Navy around St. Petersburg, uh, which can be done. And as NATO members, um, Finland and Estonia can ensure that nothing moves in and out of St. Petersburg that we don't want it to move. So that's that's fine. But yeah, it's this broader perspective for the Finnish Navy. Um, but again, it, it'll be an interesting exchange because I'm sure now the Finnish Navy will be able to be even more open about really how we're thinking about sea mines. You know, a, a kind of feature of naval warfare, as you know, that most countries hadn't thought about ever. Right. But it's a cheap way to do stuff in the Baltic Sea, especially. Yeah. Even uh, in the United so States Navy, we, we don't spend nearly enough time and energy thinking about <clears throat> mining and mine clearing operations. I mean, we do it because we have a huge Navy, but not nearly enough. And the constrained waters of the Baltic is a is a great environment to think about how you might do mining or, or demining operations. So Finland already... Yeah, so, uh, go ahead, Charlie. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so So lot, lots to think about and unpack. Uh, and I think it'll all be only be positive in that now they can be even more discussions of this. Yeah. Finland has, uh, has already been a really uh, important part of the border security efforts uh, with the European Union. Uh, Finnish border guards have routinely assisted with, uh, you know, other nations all across Europe with improving border security for the European Union. Now that Finland will almost certainly become part of NATO, uh, do you see or have there been discussions about more Finnish military deployments across Europe on a continuous basis to support the NATO operational forces? And, and I ask that we mentioned a little bit a while ago. It's not like Finland hasn't already been all over the world uh, as part of peacekeeping yep. operations. I mean, Finnish participation in peacekeeping operations is, is sort of epic, I, I would say. I even served alongside Finnish forces in Bosnia back in, in 1999. Cool. <laughs> but the situation now is a little different, a little more at stake. Uh, Finnish military forces, you don't have a huge active component. Uh, do you see nope. Finnish active uh, service, active duty forces being deployed more frequently around the NATO construct? 
I, I think it'll be some active duty and a bunch of volunteer reservists. Because, of course, you know, all the reservists, there's a national defense obligation, but that, you know, is only regarding Finland. And it is the country of Finland that has taken or is taking this collective defense um, responsibility or obligation. So it'll be volunteers, as it usually is on peacekeeping missions. It's uh, it's uh, some cadre and a bunch of reservists. Um, I mean, I mentioned this op-ed, and I've said it before. I think the Finnish Navy should send a ship. It could be a mine-clearing ship to the Med. Uh, just as symbolic, we care about what the southern um, uh, allies think. Once our new class of ship, the Pohjama, which we mentioned the previous one, uh, comes online in, in some years, hopefully, uh, that'll be an easier ship, ship to send. But yep. that's an easy one. Um, of course, more planning staff in the in, into the different headquarters. Um I think it'll be initially nearby. So I mentioned Baltic air policing perhaps contribute to Icelandic air policing. Again, we're kind of used to operating in Arctic environments. Um, and then the nearby enhanced forward, forward presence units, I think, is an easy step. And then maybe in the future, there's a need for Finland to say, look, we also care about Romania or Bulgaria or some and send some small unit there but I think that'll be down the road and dependent a little bit on the broader def, def, deterrence and defense plans that are being developed. So Charlie we have about uh, six minutes left I know that you have an important engagement with the uh, Estonian uh, foreign minister here in about <laughs> 10 minutes uh, so I'm going to make it short I want to give you the floor uh, what haven't we discussed today that we should uh, that the listeners should know about with regards to Finland and Sweden joining NATO, I'll, I'll offer you the floor. I, I think the key thing, because it, it came up in, in U.S. deliberations uh, about this, uh, and of course every Finn was extremely happy that the Senate voted 95 to 1 yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in favor of this. Um, you, you know, and, and from, I should say, from for democracy's perspective, it was probably good that someone opposed it. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> North Korea-like numbers are never great, I, I would say. Uh, um, no, but so so that's – but one of the arguments that I made to congressional delegations that were here making is um, irrespective of – and I'll touch on Finland and Sweden's military capabilities – simply including Finland and Sweden as allied members, so Finnish territory could be used or Swedish, enables the U.S. to keep its – current existing alliance commitments better hmm. it, it just by geography it makes it easier for nato collectively and u.s being part of it to defend lithuania latvia estonia poland etc um, then when you add the fact that finland and sweden although Sw finland sweden's military is currently kind of small they have as you know some absolutely globally you know cutting edge stuff um so you know, we're military security contributors. Yes, if there's a large crisis, Finland, of course, wants that there would be allies to help. But there's not an expectation that, you know, Finland's not going to continue spending 2% on defense or any of this stuff. Um, so I think it's it's kind of that this will help the U.S. live up to its existing commitments. And probably also, since I know that Asia is in the mind of many people, probably of the listeners too, um, it'll make it probably possible in the long run, because with this, you can reconceptualize northern European defense, not just Nordic or Finnish and Swedish, but northern European defense. Um, it'll make it easier for the U.S. to 
rebalance or shift some efforts or capabilities, frankly, um, to Asia Pacific uh, or Indo-Asia Pacific uh, from Europe. So I think those are the two, you know, very positive things that, frankly, the U.S. stands to gain, funny as it sounds, uh, from from taking Finland and Sweden in. So Charlie, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a curveball at you. Uh, <clears throat> I, I read a short Love article <laughs> by uh, uh, Janne uh, Kusala, uh, Director General yeah. of the Defense Policy Department at the Finnish Ministry of Defense, and he uh, he highlighted the fact that there's going to be uh, they just organized the first international foreign and security policy conference, the Helsinki Security Forum, uh, is coming up uh, pretty soon. I think. Uh, can you tell us a yes. little bit about that uh, that forum? Uh, sure. Since my institute is uh, is uh, key in having to or getting the honor of organizing it, uh, <laughs> the the um, I guess it's always bad to begin an explanation by also referring to others, but it, it gives people an idea. So the idea is to gather uh, really high level participants and speakers to discuss uh, regional security issues. Um, it, some of the listeners might have heard of things uh, equivalent ones in Riga or the Leonard Mary conference in, in Estonia and Tallinn, but effectively a few days of a mixture of politici senior politicians, policymakers, researchers um, discussing these issues. Mm. Uh, yes, with an agenda, but always enough space for socializing and i bring that up because it's it's often the thing that people are made fun of you know you go there to have have some drinks um yeah but that's where people that's where officials can really say what's on their mind right um you know a minister can say something completely different over some drinks or not completely different but they can give more color yep. than they can in comments that are broadcast globally uh so it's a really a mixture of the kind of official setup as well as all these chances to to uh well go swim in the baltic too i think and go in the sauna <laughs> and, and stuff like that too so that's that's what it's about and it's uh you know as i said we're kind of organizing it but it's done together with the finnish foreign ministry defense ministry um defense forces the president's office so it's really a national effort all right and, and what you just mentioned that uh those personal connections right in a crisis, you can surge a lot of forces, a lot of capabilities, uh, et cetera, but you can't surge trust. That has to be there before the crisis ever erupts. Unfortunately, Charlie, we've come to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Charlie Slonius Pasternak, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you have to run. You have the dinner engagement with the uh, Estonian foreign minister. Uh, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Hey, if you like this show, then make sure you tune in to Public Policy This Week on Friday mornings at 10 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. And Charlie Slonich Pasternak, thank you so much for taking time out of your the end of your busy day to join us. No, thank you. It was, it was a pleasure and honor to be here and, and, and catch up. All right, everybody, take care. Have a great finish to your week. been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.